VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, July the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM which is 86 uh, 26. Well, I know that minor soccer has huge enrollment numbers here in the province, and we're playing pretty well on the Atlantic stage and even on the national stage, certainly at the senior level. So I don't know how many people are looking forward to it, but I know I am. The FIFA World, World Cup of Women's Soccer kicks off tonight in Australia. Canada opens up against Nigeria, who are number 40 in the world. The World Cup for women has grown exponentially over the years. So it was a 12-team tournament that began first in 1991, moved to 16 teams in 99, 24 in 2015. Now it's grown to 32. So here's a couple of things that people need to know about the World Cup this go-around. The prize money, there's been massive arguments between women's sports of all varieties about the disparity between the pay for men and women. And look, eyeballs drive revenue, revenue drives pay. So the prize pool has increased a lot here now. A total of $40 million in 2019 to $152 million this year. The players were also demanding that FIFA paid some of that money directly to the players as opposed to just to the federation, and the federation decides how much money the players will get. So there's 732 players in the tournament. Each will receive at least $30,000. If you make it to the quarters, the players will get $90,000 each. Semi-finalists, $165,000 each. Champions, $270,000 each. So a big increase in pay. And, of course, it's six World Cups for Christine Sinclair, our captain. She's been uh, at the five previous. She scored in every one. Hopefully she can cap off an amazing career at the age of 40 in Australia and New Zealand in this World Cup. She scored 190 goals and 323 senior appearances, the highest scoring soccer player, man or woman in the world. I love repeating that because I think that's a cool stat. Canada's not getting much love. Seventh ranked team in the world, but the betters are giving us very little chance, a 3% chance of winning the tournament. Of course, the Americans, yeah, the reigning, gold medal, uh, reigning Olympic gold medalist, Dave, you're absolutely right. In the prior Olympics of that, they won a bronze. But they're way outside the betters uh, favorites, so they're 30 to 1. So a 3% probability of winning the tournament. The Americans are looking for three straight. No women's team has ever won three straight. There's been eight World Cups, and the Americans have won four of them, and they're the odds on favorite ahead of. Germany, England, what have you. Even if we come second in our pool, we then play England, who are the betters' second favorite. Anywho, and if that's your not your grass kind of sport, the British Open begins today at Royal Liverpool. And it was on this date in 1986 that Greg Norman, who's become a notorious man now, given that whole Live Golf PGA Tour kerfuffle, he won his first major uh, on this date in 1986 at Turnberry. All right. Also, 1976 was the very last home run hit by the great Hank Aaron. His 755th hit it off Angels pitcher Dick Drago. And happy International Chess Day for those of you who celebrate. Yesterday on the program, we had a couple of young volleyball players from Labrador who were competing in the North American Indigenous Games. It's huge games. 5,000 athletes, or thereabouts, including 129 from this province. So I believe their names. I should have got it before I went on the air. Shane Winters and Noah Poole. Good chat. Good kids. And I thought, maybe I'll have a look and see how they fare. So they beat the territories yesterday in straight sets. And we were speaking to them just before they played Ontario. So I had a look at the YouTube live stream. We look pretty good, I have to say. And up against Ontario, we lost. But the first set was 25-23, extremely close. And lost the second set, 25-19. But we're stuck right in there. And sticking with Labrador. 
see a great story in the news today. And a lot of the quotes come from Jill Larkham. She's the Nazi vote government's director of tourism. And of course, five communities make up the Nazi vote. They're talking about ways where they can promote more and more tourism. You know, they don't need my advice, but every tourism ad, whether it be on paper or on television or however they promote it, if it doesn't feature the Aurora Borealis, which is amazing in that part of the world, the Northern Lights, then probably missing. They don't need me to tell them that because that's one of the key, brilliant attractions that anybody could ever offer. Dave, have you ever been anywhere where you could see the Northern Lights? I mean, it's just a sight to behold. It's mind-boggling, and it's uh, entrancing just how beautiful it is. So we're hoping to get some time with Miss Larkham this morning to talk about how they approach the unique offerings in all of the five communities, because it's not a just come to northern Labrador and the north coast, because it's not all the same. So I suppose there's also got to be some move to move towards, you know, ecotourism adventure opportunities and the infrastructure required. But looking forward to speaking with Miss Larkham, if she has time this morning, to talk about it. And one more quick mention of Labrador. Search and rescue. I don't know, that is on my mind every time I see or read the word Labrador, is the fact that we don't have the search and rescue capacity in that part of the province, which is simply amazing. Given the geographical footprint and the merciless North Atlantic, anyway, I'll just put that back out there for your consideration. And of course, if you want to talk about opportunities in the mining sector, we're carefully trying to keep our ear to the ground about any moves forward for investment dollars and plans, whether it be for individual mining companies, juniors or otherwise, and the hope that we can capture the whole supply chain issue. Big opportunities there. And on that front, you know, change is absolutely hard. It truly is. Although change is the one constant in this world. So people will bemoan the fact that Equinor has walked away at this moment, shelved the project at Beta Nord for upwards of three years. BP was apparently sitting on a fine for further exploration that could be absolutely massive, even bigger than the three or five billion barrels out of Beta Nord. Remains to be seen if either or come back to the table. And now there's not going to be one industry that in full can replace the impact of jobs, tax base, revenue, and royalties flowing to the province, like the oil industry. You know, we can indeed see some transition opportunities, and I think they're out there. You know, it's easy to be really down in the mouth about the economic opportunity in the province, but I think there's still a lot there to explore. You know, even though the change will be hard, even if you just look at some specific examples, like for instance, out of the Port of Argentia, Scott Penny, hopefully Mr. Penny can make time, there was an injection of some $38 million from the federal government out there as part of their $1 million proposed expansion. So they may indeed be a real hub here. We know they're going to be a, a lay down yard, I don't know what the right phrase is, for the monopiles, which is one of the components of the offshore wind turbines. But that can create some massive economic opportunity in that region. And we do know that there's going to be at least a few of these companies that move off from this second phase into construction in the wind to hydrogen to ammonia world, you know, including out in the port of Argentina, now that it comes to mind, Pattern Energy. One of their key leg ups is that they don't need in phase number one any crown land. So I assume that's going to proceed as scheduled out of the port of Argentia. And on that front, when you talk about where the economy goes, and you know me, we can talk about whatever you're into. It was on the 6th of May in 2021 where the government released the report from the Premier's Economic Recovery Team, the PERT report, the Green report. They put a lot of stock in it, and I know that's kind of probably faded out of many people's memory because there's so much right in front of us we need to talk about, but they put a lot of stock in this. It was apparently going to be a blueprint or part of the blueprint to map out the province's future in economic recovery, economic opportunity. 
I haven't heard much on that front since. And some of the recommendations were pretty massive. Like we just mentioned Equinor and BP, and we do know that there's, well, three operating oil fields now. We're still waiting for some news from Suncor about what exactly is going on at Terra Nova. And I think they kind of owe us some answers, given we've got, you know, about a half a billion, half a billion dollars in play. You know, with 200 million-ish uh, cash on the barrelhead, uh, royalty relief is of 300 million. We don't know what's go- going on out there, but one of the recommendations in that report was to evaluate. And I think there's some work going on here. It'd be nice to know where the government stands. And this is not suggesting they have to or they should not, but it's divesting our equity in the oil state in the oil fields. You know how what, how much that might be worth and what the upside would be for doing exactly that. Now, I know Marble Mountain has expanded for year-round operations. We've had their marketing manager on here. They've got some good plans in place. But they've also talked about, at the government level, divesting. There hasn't been any real interest from the private sector when they put out the RFPs. And then it's the permanent motor vehicle. And then notably, of course, the NLC. Most people say, why would we ever consider selling off the NLC in full or in part? Because it generates a couple hundred million dollars for the province. Even though the province would retain the ability to put an excise tax on alcohol and all the products sold at the NLC. But, you know, we really haven't heard much since. And that's over two years ago that the public first got a look at the report. So if you want to tackle it. We can do it. Okay, a little education. Yesterday we had the Minister of Education, Crystalline Howell, on the show. The message that the government was trying to put forward, of course, is the $10 million for Memorial University for a one-year relief in the campus renewal fee. You know, (laughs) okay, good. But it's also as a direct result of the government withholding some $68.4 million, which, of course, has led to a Dublin tuition. Getting it right in education has got to be right at the top of all of our lists. So inside that world, just for comparison's sake, That $10 million of one-time money for Memorial University in the most recent provincial budget, outside of infrastructure, there was only $12 million in full for the entirety of the K-12 system. So where are priorities lying? Yes, it's probably uh, smart money out in the town of Lewisport, $10 million for some more upgrades and what have you in that community. And yes, it's probably a good spend to uh, talk about replacing the Go bus fleet with electric or hybrid vehicles at the tune of maybe some $12 million, which includes solar panels on 120 uh, metro bus stops for energy savings and for safety. But where do we start putting our focus on K-12? A couple of things. I'm not surprised, but this is where we are. Asked directly about learning loss, and you, you might not have a child in the K-12 system at this moment in time, so it might not be at the top of your uh, list of concerns or on the front burner or on your radar even, but all of us will be impacted about how well our K-12 students do. So inside the concept of learning loss, and I've looked at a couple of studies in the UK and in the United States, notably in the States, grades three through eight, looking at the performance and how the curriculum was delivered and absorbed for some 6.7 million public school students, they found out very, very quickly that there was a problem. And as a result, the federal government invested some $200 billion to try to advance tutor programs, summer school options. So when asking the minister about it, and I know Crystal Lynn Howell is very new to the portfolio, but ministers have very little time to catch up and to get fully on track with what their, uh, their department is doing and what they need to do. Apparently, or seemingly, we haven't done anything on this front. There's been no examination well, and that's not my words. I asked the minister about it. She says, well, you're onto something. Yeah, we are. Just imagine if we have not adjusted the curriculum or offered more tutor programs or offered opportunities over the summer for students who want to either uh, 
do better with a failing grade and or to improve their scores and or to make sure they're ready for the next level. Because let's just say you want to go to MUN or you don't. You might want to go to the Marine Institute or College of the North Atlantic or Academy, wherever. Let's just say you want to go to a university up along. They don't care where you came from as long as you pay your tuition and fees because they will have their thoughts about how prepared you should be to get into their post-secondary institution. And if you're not prepared and you're not up to grade with other provinces that may have adjusted the curriculum, then we're going to fall behind. And it's not just post-secondary. We know how small the world is now. And the competition in the job market is severe. So I find it alarming, to be honest with you, that we just have not really carefully looked at the concept of learning loss and what we can do about it. So anyway, if you want to take that on or anything inside this school envelope, let's do exactly that. What does this say? Oh. How does the government, provincially, federally, wherever, try to balance between the union's right to strike and collective bargaining process and or mediators, binding arbitrators, because out of the ports in BC and the largest port in the country is Vancouver, there was the threat of a strike on Tuesday that was withheld based on an independent ruling saying basically that the strike was illegal, they didn't give the required notice. But when we've had a lot of focus on supply chain interruptions, whether that be the impact on food or the impact on semiconductors or whatever, we've had a huge interruption out in BC. Billions of dollars of goods have been stalled in and out of the port, some 13 ports and the workers out there. Then there's the real-time economic impact inside the country. So, you know, they've been basically legislated back to work at this moment in time. But <clears throat> but the 13 days that they were off, it probably had an impact that we don't quite fully understand at this point. And yesterday I had an interesting call from a gentleman talking about cancer screening. So we'll dig into healthcare for a second. So I thought it was an important call and some interesting words that he brought forward regarding aging out of the screening process. So I had to look around and I tried to find as much information as I, as I could about how governments and importantly, how healthcare professionals inside the world of oncology are looking at the benefits of screening and when, at what age, it may not, uh, may not be the benefit that some people think it is. This is not me arguing a point because I don't know. We are going to try to get someone with an educated, informed voice on this to help walk us through it. So they talk about people with an average risk of cancer getting colorectal cancer screening through the age of 75, breast cancer screening through the age of 74, cervical cancer screening through the age of 65, and after after that, why those types of screenings will not be offered. They refer to it as over-screening, over-screening, describing the use of such tests past the point where they're likely to provide a net benefit. It sounds so counterintuitive because we're always told if indeed you identify a cancer early on, the, the likelihood of treatment being successful it increases by wide margin. So I'd love for someone in that world who really knows what they're talking about, has the expertise and the experience and the training and the education, help us walk us through that particular issue, because I think that'll be helpful for many people here. All right, and as you know, it was sticky in the bunk. I know the weather's a bit of an eye roller, but it's some people embrace it, maybe others not so much. Terra Nova, hottest spot in the country yesterday, 31.1 degrees, sometime late afternoon yesterday. Bonavista, 28 and a half. Uh, many parts of the province hit 40 on the humidex. So the question being asked by some is, I mean, we all do what we can to try to stave off the heat. And there's not much you can do in the bunk necessarily. Oh, you know what I mean. But 
people are asking, are municipalities recognizing the fact that many folks, especially our seniors, may be struggling mightily and whether or not cooling centers is part of it as opposed to leaning on a grocery cart, uh, cart and walking up and down the roads at Coleman's or Sobeys or Dominion all day just in an effort to stay cool. So you want to take it on. Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Bob's going to kick us off right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to Bob, this is a new public alert coming from the RCMP out in Harbour Grace. They're informing residents of an unfolding situation involving a possible armed individual, which requires that the public remain away from the area of Valley Road and Carbonair near the College of the North Atlantic and the Carbonair Pool. Further updates to come. That's from the Harbour Grace detachment of the RCMP. Let's begin on line number one. Uh, Bob, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Teddy. Good morning to you. I just want to. Uh, I listened to your show yesterday about PSA testing and that. Mm-hmm. Just my experience. Uh, I was diagnosed just over five years ago. I had no symptoms, no nothing. Just went in for normal medical. I've had the PSA test done over the years, and my numbers came back elevated. So I have another test done, and then urologist in St. John's and had a biopsy done. Still no symptoms. And six weeks later, I got the results and I had to have my prostate removed. And that was done from from my PSA test from October until it was removed in March. And now I'm, I'm at the five-year mark and no, no levels there now. It's cancer-free. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And so the moral of the story is you caught it early, even though you weren't symptomatic. And so I guess that's in relation to the question about how and why the healthcare system says that screening at a certain age is of little benefit and possibly more yeah. harmful than helpful, which doesn't really sound like it makes a lot of sense, which is why I'm trying to get someone who's yeah. got an informed voice to come on and tell us the rationale behind that or help, yeah. help us understand. They do say... Eventually, everybody will get prostate cancer, but you're probably going to die from something else. And after, I don't know the exact age limit, but they do. Uh, somebody I know, he's in bad health, so now he can only treatment he can have is is radiation or chemo. It's too dangerous to remove his prostate. I mean, the the comment you made, which sounds again like it's people being called in calluses that, well, at a certain age, if you get prostate yeah. cancer, it's likely that something else is going to kill you before that does, yeah. which just sounds really cold. But uh, how much truth is uh, associated with that particular uh, comment? Don't know, which is once again why we'll try to get help someone to help us understand exactly what's going on here, because I did a fair bit of reading about it yesterday. All the papers that I read, whether it be for the National Cancer Institute or the CDC, or Health Canada, they all say very similar things about an age at which it becomes the likelihood of it being more harmful than helpful is the reality. So, again, we'll try and see what we can do here. Yeah. I just recommend once you hit 45, it's, if it's in your family history, have the test. If you, some doctors don't like doing it. All it is is a blood test. It takes two minutes. Yep. And you, you get the results within a week. And once you hit 50, you should have it done. I agree 100%. I'm waiting for my appointment. Yeah. And I preach to, I've 
preached to people around my area, friends, and one person I convinced him to go, he actually caught it early also. Good news, and what's his prognosis? He's had his prostate removed, and he's doing good there now. It's good to have you on, Bob. I'm glad to hear you're cancer-free and you were able to encourage a buddy to go get the test, and they nipped it in the bud, so to speak, as well. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Bob. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, the recommendations are clear, but that's where the juxtaposition comes in, right? Is that get tested, get it early, get it treated, cancer-free, hopefully in remission forevermore. Uh, but at a certain age, apparently that's not necessarily the same message being offered. Interesting stuff. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Tiller. Good morning, Mayor Tiller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind this morning. Thank you. How about you? Good, sir. Enjoying the lovely weather we're finally getting. It's nice and warm. I try not to complain about it. It is a bit uncomfortable at night, but yeah, a bit of summer heat is, for many, what the doctor ordered. Certainly. Uh, Patty, I'd like to uh, just announce some of the events that we got coming up for our annual crowd festival that's okay with you sure um we're going to kick it off on sunday with uh opening ceremonies at the newly renovated reach museum uh we've we've got some government funding we've done a wonderful job bringing it up to its former glory there's going to be a cake cutting uh kicks off at two o'clock eight o'clock that night we have a movie night on the ball field presented by scotia bank Monday, we have our bonfire night, barring uh, the fire ban. That'll be an announcement made in case something changes there. Uh, Tuesday at 1 o'clock, 1.30, uh, there's a line dancing at the fire hall. We have a bubble run at Southwest Farm Park at 5. Wednesday, it's uh, a garden party at the seniors at the Bond News Lodge for anybody who wants to go. There's cupcakes being decorated that night at the fire hall for kids who want to go. There's times and, and amounts for that. Uh, Thursday, we have our washer tournament at the stadium, which is always a huge turnout. Friday is a poker tournament at the um, stadium again. We have our dance Saturday night at the stadium. Uh, there's also breakfast at the Lions Club on Saturday. Uh, we have the Kitty Wake Shore things are doing a Who's Going to Fill Their Shoes country event, 7.30 at the Barber site for Saturday. Sunday, it is, um, we have a hypnotist and a musician, musician, uh, sorry, magician, Patty, tongue-tied this morning. Uh, and Saturday is also our co-ed guy, Perry Softball Tournament. So, Patty, if you want to get a bunch of EOCM members together and come out for a game of softball on Saturday, you're more than welcome. I have a huge bat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'd love to see your huge bat in New West Valley and see if we can have some fun. <laughs> It'd be great. I wish I had some time. So that's a nice lineup of fun activities. Uh, anything else on the agenda, or can I ask you a couple of questions? Uh, yeah, Monday. Well, Monday we have our family day also on the ball field with some games and prizes and whatnot. Okay. Uh, can I, I'd just like to make a quick comment on the, the brief announcement by the Department of Health about the mobile clinics. Yes. Uh, I think it's a wonderful idea. It's nice to see government stepping outside of the, the box, we'll say, and trying to come up with some unique opportunities. It's, it's basically using... Uh, employees that are already in the system that, that would like to have a break and something different. The they old saying is a change is as good as a break. And if we can get uh, some more access to family doctors and, and primary care in our area, I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, I was speaking with Minister Osborne, and, and he told us that one of those clinics were going to be used between our area and uh, another area of the province until some permanent fixtures can be made. I know that they're putting a lot of effort into the personal or the uh, permanent 
fixtures, but uh, you can't create people, and, and you don't want people here that don't want to be here. They had to be the people that want to be here, and if that takes a little bit longer, well, well I guess these mobile clinics and stuff can uh, help fill the void. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not a panacea, but there's actually no such thing in the world of healthcare. And, you know, people don't want to hear it, but the struggles are mighty in every single province and territory in the country, which is why the feds really need to play a bit more of a role to help us understand the path forward, because if we're simply going to get into a bidding war and throw money as if that's going to solve everything in healthcare, we're just kidding ourselves. If it was money, we'd be all right, because we spent about $4 billion on about a half a million people. So there's something more to it that we need to understand. Yeah, I don't want to see our doctors being auctioned off like like property or or, uh, or vehicles. I mean, we not. want people in our area that need to be in our area because they want to be here, raise their families here, and we have a beautiful area to raise a family in. 100%. You uh, live in a beautiful part of the province, so it's the communities of Newtown, Wesleyville, Valleyfield, just south of Cape Friels, one of the hidden gems in the province if you're looking for a bit of sandy beach. So how has the summer been out there, and do you have the infrastructure to put up with what we hope would be a real growth in tourism numbers? Well, we are seeing a lot of tourists. I've seen more RVs and, and cars with, with uh, other province and even United States license plates. Uh, the area as a whole, I'd say, in the Bonneville North region, is lacking accommodations. Uh, I know that there are people who have started uh, to build some new accommodations here, but uh, this region alone could easily handle another 30 or 40 uh, different rooms or, or efficiency units or something to keep people here. Uh, we do have Southwest Palm Park for your RVs, uh, for your nightly rentals there, and even for some tenting. But that is one thing we're lacking, and, you know, we've had uh, town hall meetings, and we're looking into using some different kinds of advertising to try and bring in entrepreneurs, to try and bring in uh, some more restaurants and some more uh, nightly rentals, some more long-term stays for our our seniors and whatnot, Uh, affordable housing. Uh, It needs to be here, and we have made a huge push uh, since January this year to reach out to engineers and contractors and to make land available for for land auctions. Uh, September 18th, we have 18 to 20 huge, uh, some huge parcels, some smaller parcels of land that are going to be going on tax auction. And, you know, we're going to start the process now of, of putting these uh, locations out because we want people to set up shop and set up their homes in, in our area. Yeah, the opportunities for growth are, are here. Sometimes people get mad when I talk about there are chances here for us to grow, there are opportunities for us to grow economically and otherwise, but there really is. You know, it takes some of the grunt work, but brute force is one of the true fires, uh, true proven ways to get things done. Uh, certainly, Patty, and, and there's one thing that I will that I'll take to, to my end of my political career is that if, if it doesn't happen, it's not because we didn't push hard and, and work hard every day to make it happen. And we will put in our 1,000% effort, and, and hopefully it'll pay off for us. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the upcoming events, Mayor Tiller. Thank you for your time, Patty, and you have a great summer. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Mike Tiller. He's the mayor of New West Valley. All right, and there's a good example of, you know, people will criticize and critique and fair enough and debate whether or not some of the concept that used to be called regionalization now we're talking shared services how it can work for your part of the province and mayor tiller in the past we've dis- uh, discussed exactly that because there are opportunities there as well okay let's go ahead and take a break uh john's in the queue to talk about road work and avoiding it in the evening donna wants to talk about mental health services and then we'll talk with you uh, both whatever's on your mind don't go away 
Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we all know there's a housing issue in this part of the province, and for sure. And what, how it pertains to Memorial University, international students and otherwise, because the cost of rent and even vacancy rates are so low, it becomes a massive problem. We've tried to drive that conversation a little bit harder right here on this program. Let's see how it works in other parts of the country. Join us on line number six is the founder and CEO of Spaces Shared. That's Ryland Kinnan. Good morning, Ryland. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on the program. I think that this is such a win-win-win situation and an opportunity for so many people. It's a real wonder to me while we haven't explored it a little bit more here in this province. Just for the Coles notes, what is Spaces Shared? Spaces Shared is an intergenerational home-sharing platform that makes it possible for older adults to share their spare bedrooms for some company, assistance, and extra income, and students to find safe and affordable housing and get a discount on their rent if they're willing to help out around the house. How long have you been in play? We've been operating uh, for about a year. Uh, We just launched in Ontario with two post-secondary institutions, uh, Georgian College in Barrie in April, Humber College in June in Toronto. What kind of uptake have you seen? We have seen fantastic uptake. So we have, uh, in that, I guess it's 10-week period, we've got over 100 host accounts. We've got over 500 student accounts. Uh, As will be no surprise to you, Patty, students are looking for housing. They're looking for affordable housing. And particularly, as you mentioned, international students are really interested in intergenerational living. They're interested in building deep connections into the communities that they're coming into. And that's what we get so excited about, about this model, is the opportunity to say to these students, you know, there's an opportunity for you to feed into our community by helping out older adults, giving them more of an opportunity to be able to age in place, addressing some of the challenges they may have around the home, um, but also to be able to get connections from that older adult. So one of the things we can do is we can match a nursing student with a retired or an active nurse. We can match an electrical apprentice student with a retired or an active electrician. So what we think there's a really exciting opportunity for with this model is to truly connect the students into the communities in which they're studying. What's the process for ensuring you've got an appropriate or a welcomed match between the host and the guest? Because it may indeed sound like this is a perfect matchup for you, but something might be off or whatever the case may be. How do you make sure that both sides are interested with the other being the host and or the guest? So we ask about 45 questions um, around what each side's expectation is. So we ask the host what their expectation is around the guest having um, folks over at night, folks over during the day. We ask their expectations around foods that can and cannot be cooked in the home. We ask their expectations around how quickly the kitchen, the bathroom, and living spaces are cleaned up after use. We ask questions about dietary restrictions. We ask questions about substance consumption inside the home, whether it's allowed, how often it's allowed. Uh, We ask questions about hobbies and interests so we can match based on that. We ask questions about language spoken. Now, that obviously gives us a really good sense and allows us to support folks in matching with someone that could be a good match early on. But we know living with humans, uh, it can be complicated. We've all had uh, interesting living arrangements with family members, roommates, etc. 
So we know issues can come up. So we check in. When uh, the student moves in, we send an email to both the host and the student saying, hey, how'd that go? We send another email a week thereafter, and we email everyone saying to both the host and the student, how's this going to the host? Is the student doing what they said they would do? If they've been asked to provide assistance with chores around the house, are they doing it? Are they doing it well? Um, but you don't have to wait. We have a phone line that's available during extended hours, seven days a week. So if an issue comes up, the host can call us and say, hey, something's not working out with the student. Can you help me resolve this? People will also have a built-in worry, and rightfully so, about who this person is, what their background mm-hmm. is, how safe it's going to be to have them in my home. How do you approach that? Because I would imagine for many seniors in particular, that would be right at the top of their list about you know knowing who this person is. That's exactly right. And that's the question we tend to get right off the bat. So there's a few key things that we do. First of all, we verify the student's identity right at the front end. So to be able to participate in the platform, you have to provide a government-issued ID that shows your name, your date of birth. We also require the student to provide proof of acceptance and enrollment at the post-secondary institution so we know they are, in fact, a student. And then um, before they can enter into the home share agreement, which is through the platform, the student has to complete a criminal background check. So that's what we've done formally. But the other thing we say is the expectation is that you're going to get to know the student in the platform. So you can message in the platform and you can set up a video chat in the platform. So we like to say, you know, it's, this person's not going to be a student when they move into your home. You're going to have gotten lots of opportunity to know them. And you can also set up in-person visits if you would like to do that before the student comes. Um, we're not limiting how much you can connect with that student before they move in. But uh, we think it's really important that the host and the student get to know each other and ask the right questions. Uh, so they're not a stranger when they move in. Inside legis- legislation associated with landlords and tenants, there's all sorts of rules about, you know, uh, notice for evictions and those type of things. Would this be fall under the same auspices of those types of legislation, or do you have more flexibility in your rental agreement that if something is not working, that there could be a very quick termination of the relationship, or how does those or those uh, rental agreements work? So what we set up, uh, and you know what, we're going to have to double check in Newfoundland and Labrador, but in Ontario, if you share a bathroom or a kitchen, it is not a landlord-tenant relationship. So it gives the host the flexibility um, to be able to terminate the relationship if it's not working well much faster than if it was a traditional landlord-tenant relationship. What we've set up is in our home share agreement, which a host can edit, we ask that the host or the student provide two notice periods if something's not working out. So the host could say, hey student, you're not doing what you were supposed to. Uh, You've got a week to start doing it. If after the week the student starts doing it, great, no problem. If after the week the student still hasn't started doing it, another week, uh, another notice period, another week, and then they would move to terminate the housing relationship within a month. Um, Now, under these relationships, Uh, Definitely in Ontario, it is something that you could terminate the day of. But what we want to ensure is both for the host, the host has got a great student, it's safe, it's reasonable, uh, and for the student, obviously, we want to have some protections built in. So we do hope hosts will uh, use that standard terms and conditions that give the student the opportunity to address things as they come up. We're having great conversations with uh, College of the North Atlantic, Uh, And we're hoping to have conversations with Memorial University soon. And one of the things that we've done in Ontario is with some of our partners, they've said, you know, if an issue comes up and the student needs to get out really quickly, we want to be involved in that process. We want to be able to provide support to get the student out of the home. 
So it's going to be on a case-by-case basis. What's really critical for us is that the host feels safe and the host is happy about having that student in their home and the student feels safe and happy. How does the platform deal with uh, rental payments on time? So rental payments are managed through the platform. So when the student and the host sign up for the home share agreement, uh, the student pays first and last month. We hold the first and last month payment. The first month payment is released to the host the day the student moves in. The last month is released either um, at the last month or if there's an issue that comes up around payment of rent during the rental term. Uh, Our team gets a notification if the student has not made a payment. So if the student has not made a payment, we will be calling the student and asking what's going on. And then if there's an issue, we'll be seeing if there's something that we can do with our post-secondary partners to help the student get through that challenge. So you do the chasing versus the host has to be has to take that on themselves because not everyone wants to have that level of interaction and or potential conflict. Exactly. And that's one of the things we've heard. Like there's a lot of things that this platform does to facilitate sharing your home uh, and some stand out more to others. So the fact that we verify that they're a student gets some hosts extremely excited. The fact that the host never has to reveal their phone number, address or email address. Uh, throughout the process until they found someone they want to live with is a big part. And then, of course, yeah, the fact that chasing payments is not fun, that can cause strains in the relationship, uh, that's something that we're going to take on and make sure the student is uh, living up to their commitments from a financial perspective. And with all of the the due diligence prior to the arrangement being formalized, you know, a few extra bucks coming in the door, someone to shovel the driveway or to clean up the uh, the kitchen or paint the fence or whatever it is that they put forward as the task they'd like to see completed, there just feels like there's a lot of win-win here. When you get closer to formalizing your relationship with CNA or any other institution in this province, love to have you back on the show so we can give it another pump so that we can try to help the student and certainly help the host. Well, thank you so much, Patty, and thank you for bringing attention to this issue, both for students and hosts. It's so important that we as communities talk about who's living in our communities, that we recognize the challenges that older adults have in our communities, and especially that we recognize the challenges that students who are coming into our communities who are going to help grow our communities, our economies, our societies, that they're supported. So just thank you very much for bringing attention to this issue, and I look forward to being back on the show uh, when we're further along in our discussions in Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks, Rod, and appreciate the time this morning. Thank you so much. You too. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Rylan Kinney, the founder and CEO of Spaces Shared. It just feels like that can work, right? You know, if we have housing issues and crisis and lack of availability for rental units and all the rest of it, maybe, just maybe, we can inject that. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Mayor of Carbonera. That's Frank Butt. Mayor Butt, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I just want to give a little update on the situation that's developing here in Carbonera. Please do. Uh, all town facilities have been shut down, and uh, any programs that are offered for students uh, have been uh, shut down as well at the Carabiner Academy as well as Carabiner Pool. Uh, we asked parents not to go into that area because it would cause uh, congestion and uh, would interfere with the uh, ongoing uh, situation. Uh, all, like you said, all the, some businesses have uh, shut their doors as well as precautionary measures. Uh, it's certainly a still developing situation, and uh, as we find out more, we certainly will relate back to uh, the residents of uh, our area. It's, you know, it's becoming all too common, this, you know, stay in place. So is the advice now not only to simply stay away from that area, but to stay where you are, period? Yes, yeah, so the RCMP has advised to, you know, basically, if you don't need to go outdoors, 
seen, so I, uh, you know, they haven't actually said to lock your doors or stuff like that. But uh, that's a precautionary measure, just uh, you know, just hang tight where you are, uh, just make sure that you know you're not out around so that uh, you know because the police presence is pretty high. They have a job to do and they're doing it well, so they they just, they just don't want people in the way to. Uh, so they can get their, their job done as well. And someone just forwarded me something that says they're actually saying please stay inside with your doors locked. It's a male wearing a maroon shirt, black shorts, maybe driving a grey four-door Honda Civic with silver rims. So that's some information about who the, the suspect might be and what they might look like and what they might be driving. But now they're saying, that, you know, not only avoid the area, but stay inside, lock your doors. So. Yes, okay, well, as, as you say, whatever, whatever the RCP are advising to go ahead and, and follow those situations. And the, and the alert did go out there, so, you know, that's, that's great to let the people know what's happening here to, uh, you know, to make sure that things uh, run along smoothly in that. Hopefully this comes to a peaceful resolution ASAP. We'll keep our eyes on it and share what information that we see coming in with the residents in your area. And I appreciate your time here, Bot. No problem, Patty. And uh, you can check out our social media sites and that for updates as well. Appreciate this. Stay safe. Thank you. Bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. It's Frank Bott. He's the Mayor Carbonair. Okay, we'll keep the information coming as quickly as we can get it and see it and uh, relay it to you. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, Donna, who's next? Donna? Maybe Donna. Let's talk about the lack of mental health services here in the province and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Donna, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Uh, Donna, first-time caller. Welcome. Uh, just calling uh, about awareness about the mental health and addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost my son in April through addiction and mental health and a lack of and uh, I, I'm my only son my uh, my only child and uh, he went to the hospital here in Central and uh, on April the 13th to get help for his addiction and which he was Two weeks prior, it was cut down off the rope from trying to commit suicide, and was told, told him three times that at that visit, that like, are you hearing me? Like I was, his girlfriend would say, did you just hear what Michael said that he was? Well, I had to cut him down off a rope. So they were there talking back and forth to, I guess, the intern and the doctor, and all they say was. All he said was, well, adjust your medication and you can do counseling. Yet, he was addicted to uh, a couple drugs, not good ones. And uh, instead of saying, okay, we're going to do this, he wanted to go on this treatment because he had had to come home from his job from Vazi Bay because he could not. I guess some with addictions, you can't focus and whatever, his job, because he was a mechanic and heavy equipment operator. And uh, said, you come back on the 17th and we'll set you up for this treatment. Knowing that this guy, my son was just two weeks prior, cut down off a rope and have to wait. And like when when you leave an hospital, when you get enough nerve to go into an hospital, and say, come back on the 17th? You think that you're going to go back there on the 17th? It seems unlikely. That's right, exactly. Because he, he, he took all of his money, I guess, you know, knowing that he's got to come down off all this stuff and trying to get help for his mental health and, and his chemical imbalance. He kept saying to him, like, I got it's something wrong. I got a chemical imbalance in my head, like, 
and going back and forth to the doctors prior, like from 2016 on, saying that he needs to be tested for ADHD and nothing being done, and it just kept this, this vicious cycle over and over. And I guess at the end, he just said, that's it, I give out. And the 28th of April, that was it. He was gone. I lost him. Gone. No more. I'm... You know, the obvious is I'm just so sorry to hear this story, like so many I've heard over the yeah. years. And, you know, yeah. I, I think it's absolutely fair. So my deepest condolences, I can't even imagine. Thank you. Um, no. you know, at, at what point do, do we hear stories where the intervention is immediate and the solution <laughs> is found? Because yeah. this bit about come back on this date or that date, for people yeah. who are struggling and people who are spiraling, there is exactly. no adherence to calendars. There's no, okay, well, yeah. when, whenever you can fit me in. Because if someone presents with any suicidal ideations, that is yeah. all anybody needs to know. That is the reddest yeah. of all red flags. It's so I, I don't know what to say on these stories. They're just so heartbreaking. And Patty, when he was cut down two weeks apart, like he was gone. It's only when she cut him down, he hit the floor and must have just jolted his heart or just given a gust of wind or something and gotten back. Like, how much more do they need to hear to get help for these people? You know? It's, it's, it's this, I, I, it took all my money to call you. I said, I've got to call. I've got to call. Because I'm not the person to to be around and be around people I like and talk on online. I listen to you every single day, and I even listen to your recordings at night. And I said I got the call, and now all of a sudden you're going into a restaurant or like, and you're seeing these signs: addiction, uh, get help, no waiting list. I never seen none of that when we were looking for help. I never seen these signs, and now all of a sudden they're showing up everywhere because it's, it's so much of it happening. And we're losing so many lives because of it, because of the lack. And he, when he went to that hospital, it was a doctor, not a mental health nurse. If she didn't know how to deal with him, he should have been sent to a mental health nurse in that hospital. They're there waiting for people like my son that I just lost, my only son. And it's not good enough. No, it's not. It, it, it simply is not good enough. You know, no. it's one thing for people to be in crisis and to yeah. say that they are thinking about hurting, harming, or killing themselves, yeah. but when they've already displayed that they're willing to go through with it. it was the, he still had stuff on his neck, Patty. Yeah. He still had the rope burns on his neck. How much more do you need to see to know that this child is seriously going to succeed on what he tried to do two weeks prior? If you didn't help him on April the 13th, he should have been admitted and treated. Two simple Two simple steps, that's all it would take. Admit, treat. And to change your medication, for when you're changing medication, you know when you change your medication, it takes weeks to get in your system properly. Just send it on with extra medication or help the medication and hope to see you back here on the 17th, if not, or whatever, right? 
it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. Donna, how old was your boy? Like 29. 29. And Patty worked ever since he got out of school. He went to school and he got his trade and every equipment. Like in Limetown, you're that young fellow was hands-on, like he can take an engine out of a car, he can take his transmission out of his car and put his, like, he started a new job at Vizy Bay. They loved him instantly because he was so knowledgeable. Just bought a house in January, you know, he just figured, you know, and and this happened, crying for help, and and now God, we got nobody. Don, I know it's not easy to talk about or maybe even face-to-face nope. face with anybody, but certainly it takes uh, something to want to call us and tell us about oh. it publicly because it, hopefully this will not only help the conversation and the government's understanding of the issue, but what I also hope it doesn't do is dissuade anybody from trying to get some help because that's the tricky balance that we try to strike, isn't it? Make these yep. stories known. Tell these stories. Yep. Put faces to mm -hmm. these stories. And at the same time, try to encourage folks, if you are in crisis, if you need help, yep. please continue to try to get it. And if we can try yep. to help point in the right direction, we absolutely will at every turn. And Donna, mm -hmm. again, my heart breaks for you. And I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that way this morning. Would you like to tell us or say anything else before we say goodbye? Well, I just want to put a kudos to Chris Tibbs. He stood up in the house a week after my son passed and and told his name. My son's name is Michael James Dalton. And he stood up in that house with pride and they came from the hurt to tell about mental health and what happened to him. So kudos to Chris Tibbs. We should, all, we should all do exactly that. Tell the stories and not exactly. be afraid of where the fallout comes. Exactly, exactly. Donna, you take good care of yourself. If you ever feel like uh, giving us another shout on this or anything else, please do. I will. Thanks, Patty, for taking my call. My pleasure. You take good care. You too. Okay, bye. Donna, bye-bye. Uh, before we get to the news, let's go to, uh, let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How about you? Yeah. Uh, sorry to hear about that lady's loss there. Start That's with. tough, man. Hard stuff. Uh, last night, I was downtown, and I decided to go in pitch there for a drive in there. But I'm not going to tell you. We had a call, uh, 911. Um, driving along, and about three quarters of the way through, there was probably eight or ten of us in a line. All of a sudden, all hands are going the wrong way. Like the parlance, I don't know what happened. Like the, I mean, I was thinking as a driver, some geez, maybe they got just turned to one way or something. I don't know. But anyway, we kept driving the line about eight or ten of us, and we kept going and going. And anyway, when I got down by the uh, cross of the bridge of Kilbride, there, I could see the cars coming in the distance. So anyway, I managed to get over. Most of us got over out of the way and went through that emergency turnaround. And a couple of cars were still there as the cars came by. But one car in particular kept on going. I mean, we called 911 type of thing and uh, kept going. And, I mean, the, I mean, the car was doing 80 to 90, 100, 80 to 100 kilometers an hour on the average. I mean, all the cars that was in like me were blowing the horns, flashing the lights, as if to say, like, you know, you, you, you're in the wrong lane. I mean, I mean, I was waving my arms, I mean, driving. I mean, I'm sure he could see me because he was driving the wrong way. And there and see, finally caught up to him. Uh, they came down just before Fowler's Road, managed to get him stopped. I mean, that's a long ways to go with cars coming towards you, blaring the lights and the horns and stuff, and kept on going at, at that speed. I mean, uh, they, they got to do something up on that road before someone gets killed up there. I mean, 
you know, driving the wrong way. And I mean, those power lines should, you should not be able to get in between those power lines to go the wrong way on that highway. No, and you know, that's where those big signs, like for instance, if I try to get on Pitts Memorial and I'm coming off of Gower, New Gower, there's exactly. a big sign with an arrow pointing this way. Go this <laughs> way. So, you know, sometimes, it's some, especially if you're not from here, it might be easy to get confused, but we've got to make sure that there's limited or zero opportunity for someone to inadvertently start going the wrong way. Well, I mean, this person may not have been from that area. It may have been their first time on that highway. I mean, and I, and I mean, I've, I've traveled it all the time, and I'm seeing some shit. There's something wrong. I mean, we're all going the wrong way, and, and you know, just well, I guess there's no cars coming towards us, so I guess they must have probably were doing construction. They must have just made a one way for now type of thing, and so I guess you would have seen the cars coming towards us. This other car just kept on going and going. I mean, this could have been a major, seriously, some could have been actually hurt or killed up here last night because of it. You know, because I mean, this car traveled you know, basically behind the Kilbride Irving, right just about to follow this road up the shore before police got him. Boys, boys. Yeah, so we'll follow up on signage issues or pylon issues in that area to make sure that they're cleaned up or rectified, whatever the right word is. John, I'm glad there was no serious incident, collision, well, or what have you. I mean, I mean, it's hard to, I mean, it's frightening to watch, actually. I mean, you're driving along and you see those cars coming towards us, going, and you don't know if it's going to get through or it's going to be a bad accident there. You know what I mean? And both cars, cars coming towards us, probably doing 100 kilometers an hour, and he's doing 80 or 100 kilometers an hour. I mean, that could have been an awful, an awful situation up on that highway because of uh, Sonny says there's not even any lights up there I mean they, they got to do something up there sounds like it I uh, appreciate you telling us about it John we'll do some follow up to make sure they do indeed uh, do something about it uh, appreciate your time thanks for the call Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. There you go. Uh, when we come back, the Newfoundland Labrador Association of Fire Services president is Chief Dwayne Antle. He's there. And Andrea, she's a health care provider, and she wants to talk about some issues that may indeed be keeping people from wanting to consider this province to be their home as a health care provider or, I guess, any other citizen. We're taking a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the NL Association of Fire Services. That's Dwayne Antle. Good morning, Chief. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? I'm doing great because uh, in Cumboy Chance, I'm sitting here in the fog. And uh, for, for most people, you know, that would be like not a good thing. Uh, but when you think about uh, all the folks now who are dealing with forest fires and, and, and uh, the threat of forest fires, uh, it's great to get up in the morning and see everything soaking wet. Absolutely. And I mean, the risk is very real. There are certain parts of the province where it's been prolonged heat and obviously very dry conditions. Then you add in the only one water bomber available over the weekend. Then some of the issues with uh, the fitness tests that many of the ground wildfire firefighters failed. Can you tell us about that, Dwayne? What do we know about how many failed? Are they still on the job or what's happening? Now, we have absolutely no information on that situation. Uh, I, I did hear about it but that's as much as, as I know, to be honest with you. Uh, but their job is very physical, and uh, th there is testing that firefighters uh, have to go through. Like, I'm a career firefighter as well as a volunteer, and at my workplace I have to go through uh, an extensive physical as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's needed. 
I mean, if you think about the, the work that they do, it's very difficult work, very strenuous work, and puts a, a tremendous amount of strain on the body. No question. I mean, you can just imagine it in your mind's eye about what it entails to be a firefighter in a wildfire situation. And at this time, when you know there's issues regarding our own personal responsibility, you know, there's stories about arson in parts of the country and what have you, but there's also plenty of stories about people simply being careless or reckless in dry conditions, whether it be with their campfire or their cigarette box or whatever the case may be. What should people keep in mind? Because it'd be a shame for a wildfire to start because someone was simply careless. Well, to start with, just being responsible, as you said, is, is a big thing. Taking a few minutes to think about what it is you're doing. Uh, for example, if you're going out today uh, and it's, you know, everything is dry and, and you're close to, uh, to, to the woods, maybe burning garbage is not a great thing to be doing. Uh, there's a great program out there to help uh, and, and it really uh, works with Newfoundland Labrador because there's so much uh, urban interface. So it's called Forestmark Canada, and they have a website it's at forestmarkcanada.ca, and there's a whole bunch of tips on there uh, to help you understand what it is you should be doing around your home, uh, some of the things that you shouldn't be doing, and how that can help you either prevent a forest fire from occurring or help protect your property if a forest fire does start. And some of these things, Patty, you wouldn't really think about unless you uh, you were told about it. Like, for example, pruning the trees around your home up, uh, I think it's two meters from the ground, uh, makes it less likely that that tree will actually catch on fire. And uh, keeping keeping the, the small tinder uh, raked up and cleaned up around your home not storing wood piles too close to to a structure things of that nature it all makes sense i mean because everyone plays a role here in protecting their property from whatever when it comes to a wildfire but also where does the responsibility lie and what kind of work do you know is being done chief when we talk about as much prevention that can be done with cleaning up the the fire load and the windfall because that leads to a major problem for the firefighters when we lived in alberta in the national park of jasper cleaning cleaning up the fire load and all the deadfall and windfall that was an ongoing operation year round What, what do we do here well, a lot of the responsibility here lies with uh, the communities themselves. For example, uh, just about every volunteer fire chief and, and paid fire chief out there is, is continuously watching the fire index because prevention is the key, uh, of course, and advising residents when it's safe or um, more particularly when it isn't safe to be having outdoor fires. Uh, cleanups around communities. Uh, are happening quite often, and, and that helps again. But if you think about where we live and, and, and the, uh, the areas around our, our small communities, to say that we're going to have a program where we're going and cleaning up all the windfalls, uh, you know, we're, we're keeping our woods uh, the way that we'd love to see them to prevent forest fires is really an impossible task where we're to. 
Yeah, I mean, we had crews at it, and I was actually part of a crew for a couple of summers. That's all we did. That's the only task we had was in there with our chainsaws and a backhoe and trucks just trying to haul out the windfall as best possible. And I guess maybe there's a bit more opportunity and monies because that was a national park, so it was a federally funded uh, operation. Uh, what else would you like to tell us about or things we should be aware of while we have you this morning, Chief? Well, like most of our communities, I depend on volunteer firefighters. Uh, 90%, 90% of our firefighters in the province are volunteers. And when we get a forest fire, we depend on, on the forestry firefighters because they're experts in that field. Mm-hmm. And, and they certainly know much more about that than, than we know. Uh, and we depend on them, but they also depend on us for support as well. So when you uh, take that moment and you think, you know what, I'm not going to worry too much about it. If I want to have a fire, I'm going to have a fire. Think about all of the people uh, who would be needed then to respond. And keep in mind that a lot of these people are not going to get paid. They're not going to get reimbursed for what they do. And and they're going to be responding and putting themselves at risk, putting uh, their futures at risk. Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we're hearing about the firefighters who are, are losing their lives fighting wildfires. That isn't just because they're in, you know, another part of Canada. That can happen right here just as easily. So before we make those decisions, think about the consequences of our actions. If we go out today and we cause uh, a major forest fire to happen, all of these folks have to put themselves at risk because of something that we could have prevented. Hopefully, uh, sorry, go ahead, Chief. Oh, and, and we need to be uh, we need to be conscious of that before we go out and make some of the decisions that we make. A hundred percent. You know, personal responsibility should be part and parcel with how we approach a variety of things, whether it be fire safety or anything else under the sun. It's good to have you on the show, Chief. Appreciate the time. Thank you for taking the time to uh, hear what I had to say. Anytime. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. As Chief Twain Anthony, the president of the NL Association of Fire Services, uh, is Andrea able to wait through this break, David Williams? Hopefully so, because Andrea's got a pretty interesting take on what might be keeping healthcare providers from wanting to make this province their home. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Andrea. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm calling you from the highway between Cornerbrook and Portabasque as I drive rurally or remotely to provide health care to uh, regions here in Western. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things that really has struck home, I came home to the island seven years ago from um, far-flung Canada. I've worked across the country. One thing that really hampers us here is our cell phone coverage on our highways. We are asking people to drive all over. Um, we've got nurses and OTs and social workers. We've got, you know, seniors coming from Hampton Junction and Beaverton Junction and, and, you know, all the side roads. But our Trans-Canada Highway doesn't even have cell phone coverage. When you leave Deer Lake and reach Gander, you don't know you're getting cell phone coverage. Like, it's why in the 21st century don't we have cell phone coverage in this province? It's a fair question. It's spotty in many parts of the province, and it's non-existent in others. I mean, like in Labrador, you got to take a satellite phone to have any sort of connectivity for your own safety or whatever else might pop up. I think the basic answer there is, like, the government has tried to partner with the big telecoms to expand the infrastructure and put up more towers. But I think the basics are, because we have such a small pool of subscribers to their telecom services, they don't see the business in putting up more towers, which is, you know, 
terrible because for how many people out there now have a cell phone that they're paying a bill for that if they stray 10 feet from a hot spot in their community they have no more coverage it's just inane and then, like you said, you're, we're asking our seniors and, and populations to live rurally and, to, and to keep, you know, stay remotely and rurally. When I say remote, I'm remote, I mean places like, I don't know, Pollard's Point White Bay is one that, you know, is where family is. You know, you can't use your cell phone. Um, we have people coming in trying to build tourism, and you, you want people to come and stay, and there's no cell phone coverage. Um, you know, we're removing services from rural Newfoundland and seniors and families are driving an hour to an hour and a half and there's no cell phone coverage. You know, it's just crazy that we're... And so as a healthcare provider, I'm asked to come and work, it doesn't matter where, um, and, you, you know, you're going to be on the highway, you're going to travel for work or what it is, and you have no cell phone coverage. We're not, we're not playing on, on a fair playing field in the 21st century by not having these connections. I don't know what it might be like in other pockets of Canada, but I do know there's certainly spotty coverage in more rural, remote parts of most provinces, but here it seems to be particularly bad. I mean, how, oh, how bad. many, how, what kind of stretch of the Buren Peninsula Highway has zero coverage, a fair bit. Zero coverage. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, like, I'm going between Cornerbrook and Port of Ass today. Um, I'm stopped right now at a, a piece of the highway because I travel this quite a bit where I know there's coverage. Um, but I cruised for a while not knowing if I was going to drop the call, and, and, and I did once and I called back. But I know that when I get down today and I've got to go to Cape Anguille or Cape Bray or whatever it is, I'm not going to have coverage. So I'm a single female traveling in remote highways. I don't know anybody. And I'm, you know what I mean? So it's, it's just where is the government in making sure that we're, our health care workers are protected and safe and have connection, our seniors and our families who are living remotely and rurally? What about our tourism industry that needs to have access? People are coming and they're used to having access at least minimum on a Trans-Canada Highway, let alone into our rural areas where we want to promote tourism. Yeah, and when you mention tourism, just take it from a business perspective. Who's going to want to or be able to set up shop in a community that doesn't have high-speed broadband internet and or cell phone coverage? It just becomes a massive deterrent where with those and those things alone, you might think, well, geez, I can't do it there. So consequently, some of the areas that really need an economic shot in the arm might not get them for very fundamental things such as that. Such as that. I mean, we talk about using virtual care. We want to have people be able to access our care virtually. And you go to people's homes, they don't have Wi-Fi and or they don't have cell phone coverage in their community. So we can't provide virtual care. So it's like we want to do one thing, but we don't have the infrastructure to actually do the. What we see now in the 21st century is the most basic of connections and basics of jobs. It, all fair points. You know, when we talk about why we might be an attractive home for anybody, including a healthcare anybody. professional, there's so many different issues that people will look at, and rightfully so. The price yep. of a house, the affordability of rent, the tax level, and yes, telecom services, the cost of getting out of here via air travel. There's a lot to it. It's not just that one size fits all. Here's the salary, and look how beautiful the province is. Please come. There's a lot more to right. it. Right. There's a lot more to it than just the money of the salary. And, and like I say, tra- having traveled and lived across the province and across the country, it, I drove St. John's twice in the last month, and you just know that you're not going to be able to contact family or anybody for a fair portion of the Trans-Canada Highway here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I see Vermont plates and Quebec plates and Arizona plates and all these plates on the island, which is fantastic, but they're, you know, they're, they're not able to call anybody while they're here while they're traveling. <laughs> uh, you're making fair points, and I wish you safe travels, Andrea. Thanks for making time for the show. 
Thank you so much, Patty. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number one. Sarah, you're on the air. Oh, hi there. Hi. I'm calling in because I live in a community here in St. John's, um, and it just recently, within the last six months or so, had the sidewalks put in because it's a relatively new community. At some point when that was being done, someone put their initials into the wet cement. Happens all the time. It does. And it certainly wasn't obstructing anybody from walking on the sidewalk. However, the city sent a team of four people here yesterday in front of our house. They had the jackhammer and everything, the tractors, all you name it. They came, and my husband asked what was going on. What, what were they doing? The city sent them there to remove that block of sidewalk because of those initials and totally re-pour the block. And now, this morning, well, this morning is when they re-poured the cement. They actually have somebody there watching it dry so that nobody else comes and damages their sidewalk. I think it's an absolute disgrace for St. John's to be spending their money on that. Yeah, a couple of things. So having to jackhammer up a portion of a sidewalk because of uh, some initials seems like an unnecessary move. Now, I do know in the world of curing cement, you can have actual significant damage caused by someone who willfully gets on that wet cement, but I don't think a fingertip putting down PED is reason that's going to cause any structural integrity problems for a piece of cement. But I tell you what, it's not uncommon to see people sitting by watching cement dry. And it's just one of those classic things you would think, you know, is how many people does it take working for the city or the province or the federal government to do these fairly fundamental tasks? But I guess if you avoid anybody willfully uh, trying to damage concrete that is not yet set, the cost of redoing is probably way more than it is for someone to sit in a lawn chair and make sure no one, no one does harm it. But it does sound, from the outside looking That's in, true. like pretty unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, I just thought, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, because some people will be absolutely willing to, uh, and on purpose, to ruin concrete. Well, because there's, there's oh, so many nuisances absolutely. around. But I don't think the initials constitute a, a jackhammer opportunity. No, and a lot of times it's, it's just kids. I mean, I don't know who did it or whatever, but... Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. It would shock no one to, to find out that as a child, I so desperately wanted to put my initials in, in curing concrete on sidewalks in my neighborhood. I can remember distinctly when we first got cable TV. And as a result, there was lots of sidewalk work being done. And I really wanted to put my initials in the sidewalk. I don't think I did, or I don't remember. Or maybe I blocked it out. Uh, Sarah, I appreciate the time. I'm sure a few people are rolling their eyes at the additional expense of a team of for to break it up and a team of one to watch it dry. Exactly. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for the call. Thanks. Bye. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, there you go. Let's take a break right on time. Juan is out in Carbonary. He wants to talk about what we're seeing in that community. We'll get an update from Juan. And then it was on this date in 1924 that the World Chess Federation was founded during the 8th Summer Olympic Games in Paris. And then in 1966, the day began uh, being heralded as International Chess Day. Daniel Effort is an interna- is, pardon me, is a chess player. He's part of the chess community. We'll talk about that, which grew in popularity through the pandemic by leaps and bounds. 
Those two calls and more right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Juan, you're on the air. Uh, yes, hi, hi, Patty. I hope you're doing well. Doing okay, Juan. How you doing? Um, I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, we're, we seem to be having a little bit of excitement over here, and um, I'm sure that the police um, are, are doing their very best to handle the situation. Um, uh, I w- was able to stop uh, up the street at the Shell gas station because I need to get some gas and um, in that short period of time noticed at least half a dozen um, uh, police vehicles going up and down Powell Drive and, and everything. But um, the rest of the, of, of the town, like the mall, Walmart, uh, I see Dominion, all the, all the grocery stores apparently are um, are currently closed right now. They'll be reopened now, though, Juan. Just good news for the listeners in that uh, area. The man has been arrested. So there's no longer a risk to public safety, so people can go about their business again. And thanks to the RCMP for wrapping that up quickly. Well, that's so cool and everything. Um, But I've actually um, been planning to give you a a real quick call before all this happened, Um, just to go ahead and very quickly share um, a personal travel experience and to just sort of say that it appears that this is what, um, you know, life is probably going to, I mean, end up being. My wife and I, um, we made a, a, a quick trip down to the States. Um, we had originally booked our flight from St. John's to Montreal, Montreal down to Raleigh-Durham, because that's um, our preferred route. But uh, it was changed uh, from St. John's to Toronto and then Toronto down to um, Raleigh-Durham. And we arrived into Raleigh-Durham about 9 o'clock Saturday evening. So um, just real quickly, the time frame um, nine o'clock Sunday is 24 hours. Nine o'clock Monday, 48. Nine o'clock Monday, 72. And then um, Wednesday, um, I came down with these very unusual symptoms um, that I had never experienced before. Like I um, was coming down with the flu or something like that. Went to a Duke Urgent Care the next day um i remember the exact day it was uh june the 22nd and i was told that the covid test was positive (laughs) so um you know that seems to be um what the reality is my wife and i um have no doubt um you know that i picked it up um on the plane um, um you know traveling back down to raleigh durham she tests. Uh, she went to an urgent care the next day on Friday, and unfortunately, her COVID test was negative. So, um, you know, that just seems to be what, what the reality is. Um, of course, we're both uh, see double vaccinated, double boosted, and I had uh, one day of symptoms. Got tested the next day, and then I guess for about a day and a half after that, I was pretty fatigued and you know, really took it easy and stuff like that. But I'm uh, 100% well back to normal. But, um, you know, that's just, a, I guess, a cautionary tale. Uh, I believe that's just going to be the reality of travel, that if you're um, 
you know, uh, obviously COVID is still out there. I believe we're all going to continue to be exposed to it. But if you are um, fully vaccinated and fully boosted, hopefully it's just going to be very mild symptoms like I have. I got a traveling. I, the the word on risk, you know, inside the fuselage of the aircraft with the type of air, air filtration systems they have, I guess, again, we're told that that's probably not the place where people are more likely to pick it up upon travel as opposed to maybe simply in the terminal or who knows where was uh, where you got it. I've had COVID once and I got it traveling. And so I don't know where I got it or how I got it, whether it be in the tube or in the airport or at a restaurant. Like, I have no earthly idea, but I got it traveling as well, which is why, you know, some of those mandates about isolation upon return were still in place. But I had I was quote-unquote fully vaccinated and i didn't have to self-isolate but i had it so i I think there's you know that's why that mandate was a bit ham-fisted and and was in place for far too long Uh, i appreciate the time anything else you want to say this morning juan um no just uh uh what in the heck is going on here with the with the weather of course um in north carolina you know it's still 10 to 15 degrees um uh warmer than it is up up here but um Boy, this uh, brings back memories of back home. <laughs> so I just wish everybody uh, the best and hope everybody stays cool. I appreciate the time, Juan. Thanks for the call. Okay. All right. Take, take care. care. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, it is warm. All right. Let's go to line number four. Uh, say good morning to Daniel Effort. Good morning, Daniel. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? Excellent. How about you? Uh, doing great. Happy International Chess Day. Thank you. Yeah, it's a big day. <laughs> it is a big day. I, I mean, I know, like, my boys went to Vanier Elementary, and there was a really strong chess club, and so consequently they both participated. I know a ton of people who play. My brother-in-law is actually a real, I can't remember the designation he holds, but he's a really top-shelf player. What's the strength of the chess community around this province look like? It's growing uh, constantly. Uh, I think it's mostly because of how popular chess has gotten over the past few years, especially uh, since COVID has started. It really drove a lot of people to pick it up as a hobby. And but more surprisingly, and, you know, after uh, the Queen's Gambit came out on Netflix, uh, you had some popular personalities coming into. You know, a lot, a lot of people like to watch people play games online. So then chess actually started becoming one of those games, and some of the top chess players in the world started using that platform for themselves so it really it all kind of culminated together to really spark this new wave of interest amongst uh, children you'll hear it a lot of time in schools that uh, kids aren't paying attention in class because they're they're paying so much attention to their phones because they're playing chess it's a completely new phenomenon in, in terms of uh, for Newfoundland. Uh, of course, we do. Yes, we have the, the Vanier School Chess Clubs, and uh, the attendance for those clubs have been growing consistently. Uh, and people are just getting continuously stronger. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a really it's a really great thing to see for Newfoundland. Uh, we typically across the country we we don't usually perform as well in comparison to other provinces, but that's been changing over the past couple of years, and we, and we've been try, uh, increasing how good we've playing just take it one step further with the whole uh, critical thinking and foresight and uh, your attention span how that how playing chess can actually be translated to other issues inside schooling and, and absorption of the curriculum in your opinion <laughs> Yeah, so funny. So I'll probably describe this by uh, talking about my nephew, who's who's a real great uh, model for how chess can completely change your behavior for the better. 
So uh, my nephew is eight years old. He has um, he has ADHD, and uh, his his of course he's a very hyper child, very active, uh, very distracted child, even of course. And uh, I taught him how to play chess, and it's amazing how much of that undirected focus is being redirected to to one thing. It's on the chessboard, and so I can get him to sit down for hours just playing chess games, and he is he is ultimately focused. So I think those skills that uh, that children are practicing right now, uh, being able to stay curious and staying interested on a particular topic, uh, I think chess is helping out a lot with that. No question, and you know. When it gets driven by things or people, uh, fictional people like Beth Harmon, it's just remarkable the impact that those types of issues, whether it be Hollywood or Netflix or what have you, because when we started looking at chess numbers during the pandemic, to know how many millions of people were not only playing the game, but what they were going online to watch other people play the game is remarkable to me. One in 10 people play chess daily. Is that right? That's right. That's fabulous stuff. And, of course, not everyone's going to be Gary Kasparov or Magnus Carlsen or Anand, whatever that guy's name is, Viswanathan. Was Viswanathan Anand? Viswanathan, yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. And also, I mean, to take it away from the recreational or the amateur enthusiast or player, some of these people make a living at it. Oh, there's a lot of people who are... In terms of professional chess standards, sub-tier, but they would beat me over the board any day of the week, uh, they're making quite a living just from playing chess and, and streaming it online and, and building up a community and an audience around uh, um, around their content. It's, uh, it's, it's quite fantastic to see, and, and only increasingly so. Uh, more and more people who are, um, for, for anyone who's understanding of, of what the chess scores are, anyone who's below a 2,000 is usually considered just a, a regular player, a good player, but not a player that's, that's going to go on to tournaments and make a ton of money, right? So, but these people who are around that 1,800, 2,000 level, uh, which is about where, where you know, some of the top players in Newfoundland are at, at the moment, uh, they're able to create great content and, and draw in a great audience. And if they're consistent with it, it's, it's actually another form of income. No question. So uh, who are the best players here in this province? And feel free to put yourself in there. I do know that there was a Vanier player, uh, I think his name was Picard, that won on a national stage. Yeah, no. Ryan Picard is a is a fantastic player. He would probably be uh, one of the top players uh, at the moment. He's native here to Newfoundland, and he's uh, um, uh, he's a fantastic player who's been playing since he was a child. His father is the one who uh, leads the chess clubs at Vanier, uh, Michael Picard, and yeah. so uh, they they've been they've been fantastic contributors to the chess culture here. Surprisingly enough, though, we had a we had our yearly. Uh, chess tournament, the one to, to designate who the chess champion is for Newfoundland for the year. And it was amazing the amount of immigrants that came in to participate. So we've got people from Syria, from uh, Jordan, from, oh my God, India. So we've got people from all over. And actually, uh, a, uh, a gentleman from Jordan, I want to say, yeah, Jordan, uh, ended up winning the tournament. 
So our strongest players now aren't even Newfoundlanders anymore. <laughs> Embarrassingly, I don't play. And I know full well I, I would enjoy it and I might even be fairly good at it, but I don't know why I don't. I guess I just have a, a weirdly busy life. Um, so on that front, do we have anybody in the province who's achieved any of those notable uh, designations as master, candidate masters or international uh, masters or anything like that? Yeah, it's a heavily uh, competitive field. So in Canada, I believe we've only got a handful of grandmasters, which is the top uh, title that you can obtain. So in Newfoundland, no, we don't have anyone who, uh, hang on, let me just consider this for a second. We had some titled players who, who used to live here, and, but they've moved out to other, other portions of the country. So they're still within the country, but uh, they're no longer in Newfoundland. Um, so, so yeah, we, we have a handful of people across the nation. In terms of Newfoundland, uh, it, it won't be very long before some of these kids uh, get up to that level. Do you or other real uh, serious chess players, do you study games of the past and recognize certain moves as, well, this was the Kasparov move or this was the Fisher move or that's, that kind of stuff? Because I hear people talk about that. It's uh, it, it's definitely a portion of our conversation. We like to go over the old games and see what kind of ideas the the old masters used to used to um, try out. And um, a lot of it is, of course, is pattern recognition. So you see certain types of positions uh, on a chessboard, and you can say, okay, well, clearly there there are some things that are calling out to me because uh, I know from master games that this is usually the direction that they would take. And you kind of go for that direction, not really knowing or understanding why exactly it's. So beneficial but you know if it worked for the masters it'll probably work for you as well I think it's great and I wish I could find the motivation to finally learn and like I mentioned my brother-in-law Ed is a terrific player and has been a champion so maybe he's the right person although maybe I just don't feel like getting my clock cleaned all the time but I should go <laughs> well, at it I mean it's it's a lot more fun when you have people who are at your level so definitely just get a chess.com account it's the it's the website that everyone goes on to to, to play chess you've got uh, nearly a billion people who are who are playing that quite regularly. So uh, once you sign up for a chess.com account, uh, the, the the website will eventually pair you with people who are your strengths. So it, it makes it makes for healthy competition. Uh, you never, you know, uh, when I first started playing chess, uh, my friend who taught me beat me constantly. He beat me 13 games in a row, and I felt defeated. But instead of feeling defeated, I felt motivated, sure. and I started studying chess constantly and uh, now to the point where he's he's unable to beat me anymore so uh, so now uh, for for what is usually common for the human experience is now that I beat him so much now he doesn't want to play chess anymore <laughs> maybe I'll pick it up it's about time at my age that I do indeed pick it up you never know maybe I can replicate Meyer's spectacular sacrifice or Sheriff's bishop sacrifice <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot more about chess than you let on <laughs> I don't really I remember reading that I think those are the right names that I just used there but anyway <laughs> classic and there's someone else's thunderbolt if I remember I can't remember who that was but anyway great stuff <laughs> good to have you on the show Daniel really enjoyed the chat yeah thank you so much and just for anyone who's listening and uh, you want to participate in, in some of our local chess clubs in St. John's um, on Thursday evenings at about 8 o'clock at the Cornerstone uh, downtown St. John's we meet up uh, every week at, at that Thursday so we usually have between 10 and 20 people showing up every week very cool thanks for your time Daniel 
Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. That was a nice change of pace. A little bit of chess. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember that other Thunderbolt move, one of the classic chess moves. Anyway, what do I know? Let's take a break. When we come back, Gail, you're next to talk about tax dollars that are being wasted. Plenty of examples of that. Don't go away. Welcome back. Okay, get my headset going here. All right, so let's go. Line number one, Gail, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, uh, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, well, you know, I was just uh, tempted to call in. When I heard the lady speaking about the city, um, uh, you know, fixing the sidewalk because there was initials put in it and the time and money spent on that, um, I I just had to, I'm a first-time caller, but I had to uh, call in in response to that. We live on Gloucester Street here in St. John's, and actually we don't have any sidewalks at all. Uh, We've been fighting for one, I guess, since 19. 1996. Uh, we have um, a lot of students renting further up the street, and they attend uh, the Marine Institute. Um, yeah, it's a very dangerous area. So when I when I heard the city was spending that much money to replace the initials, I thought, you know, I, I had I just had to call with with no sidewalks. It's just really safety concern here on the street. We um, there's many issues. Uh, we're in the heart of the city actually, and uh, we're on a well and septic. I'm 60 feet from the hookup, and the city will not hook us up here. Uh, our well is low every summer, and they carry probably a couple of jugs of water to keep us going until we get some more rain. But uh, to spend that much money to replace that, I thought to myself, well, you know, if they could uh, come up this way and and put a sidewalk in, even one sidewalk, we'd really appreciate that. So that's that's the reason for my call. They could certainly use their, their money in better ways than replacing the initial. <laughs> they could, and I mean, I remember these conversations with people living in Kilbride and Ghouls about no sidewalks and the safety concerns that that presents and they're very real and i'm familiar with your neck of the woods so i can picture it clearly but just for clarification i got this uh email from a contractor and here's the deal so they hire a contractor to pour the sidewalks pour the cement for the sidewalks and the cement in this case was was replaced with no cost to the city here's why so the contractor installed it but failed to leave someone behind to ensure the concrete dried so when the inspector came by noted what the inspector saw with the initials and noted it could be replaced apparently the contractor was obliged to do exactly that because it was their shortcomings that led to the initials being drawn in even though i don't think that's a big idea so the contractor replaced it no additional cost of that contract no additional cost of the city apparently that's what i'm told i just want to put that out there for the clarification's sake Okay, well... Um, so it doesn't change your point. That, but, uh, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And, uh, you know, it's great that it was no cost to the city. However, my point is, and I hope someone from the city um, is listening, because uh, we, we don't have a sidewalk, and we're in the heart of the city. Uh, there, you know, like you're probably familiar with Gloucester Street area. Yep. Um, we, we used to be, I, I was the last house that was Gloucester Place. And then back in 1996, I think they opened up Gloucester Place and they built a subdivision just further up from us. And uh, at that time, they bought in the, the pipes and everything to give us the services. They were laid down on our street and then the, the subdivision got built and the pipes were taken out. So we never did get get our services first or last. We feel like, um, I, 
like a third world uh, country here, just the residents. There's five houses without services. And uh, it's just so unfair because we also pay taxes. And so I hope someone from the city is listening. It's very frustrating. We're catching, um, I have a beautiful vegetable garden and I'm catching rainwater with barrels from the from the eave, you know, of the, of the shed and the house. And, uh, you know, careful as to how much, you know, washing I'm doing because the well is going to go low and stuff like that. So it's a terrible, it's a terrible way to live. And we love it here because it's actually beautiful. We're kind of, we used to be in Pippi Park, actually, mm-hmm. but they moved the boundary back. They moved the city. Uh, the park moved the boundary back. So now the boundary is just behind our backyard. And uh, so the city is saying the park should pay for it. The park is saying the city should pay for it. But no one is doing anything about it. So I just hope someone is listening. And I'm glad I got that off my chest. I'm glad you did, too. <laughs> and let me offer one more clarification. I was in no means trying to uh, undermine your point because it's absolutely important. Your taxpaying dollars is the same as mine out front of my house is a sidewalk. Right. Right. Totally get your, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, we had someone actually look and uh, come up. It was a, a private company uh, to measure uh, from the uh, the street hookup to, say, the corner of our property, and it was uh, 60 feet. So I guess now we probably, you know, I don't know if every resident would like to pay the money to have, uh, you know, have the services, but we certainly wouldn't mind doing that. And, um, you know, now we have to get permission from the city to, I guess, dig up from the street to the corner of our house. The rest would be done by a private company. But, uh, yeah, so like I said, it's been ongoing for years. Just, uh, yeah frustrating well of course it is and when the boundary of the park was moved because there was all kinds of protections associated with being inside pippi park when they move it if you are not inside the park boundaries today how could it possibly be the park's responsibility to do anything well this is it yeah yeah this is it and uh yeah anyway so uh hopefully so like i said patty someone is listening and uh please god something will get done soon thank you so much for your time i appreciate yours thanks for the call Okay, you take care now. You too, Gail. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Here we go. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, parts of the city where you're paying the same level of taxation and not getting the same level of service, well, it's an obvious complaint, right? And a fair one at that. Uh, Dave, can you do me a favor? I've got a couple of people inquiring. I can't remember exactly what Daniel Lefford said about Thursdays and what time and exactly where. I think it was at the Cornerstone, did he say, where they had their uh, chess gathering on Thursdays? So for the people, I, I heard him, but I can't remember exactly what he said. I don't want to give you bum information. So what's going to happen is Dave is going to give Daniel a quick shout verify those uh, details and coordinates so that for those of you interested in going or giving them another boost with uh, whatever media source you might be involved with we're happy to share that info as soon as we get it all right we're on twitter where we OCM open line follow us there the email address is openline.fiocm.com but of course our favorites when you join us live on the air just like Larry who's in the queue the queue to talk about learning loss Craig wants to pick up where Daniel left off talk about chess and ADHD and then whatever you want to talk about you could do it right after this break don't go away stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your VOCM welcome back to the show let's go to line number two Larry you're on the air 
good morning, Patty. Uh, I I listen to your show often. You're uh, very proficient in your in your task of duty to the people of this province. I commend you. Thank you. Uh, I would like to give you some background, actually, to the audience about the uh, loss of knowledge and how it's affected in the classroom. Okay. Okay. Uh, back in 2002, prior to 2002, there was a restructuring of the school board. And in that restructuring, it had promised more programming in the classroom. And that was playing catch-up. Okay? Uh, a challenge that I faced as a family uh, was to allow my son to complete advanced math and science. Now, we live outside of the greater St. John's area. Um, in trying to uh, uh, have that my son be able to do those courses, because he wanted to go away to the University of Waterloo, that was his choice, to study. And I was hell-bent on making sure that he could have these courses in order to be able to qualify to get into the university. Understand? I do. Okay, so when I had a considerable battle with the uh, local schools and the school board, it started in April, and I had to follow up like no man's business to make sure that he was going to get these courses in the fall and I was assured he would in the classroom at the local school Carabiner Collegiate however upon entering into the school that year to start courses of his choice of courses starting starting out and that was pre that was presented the the, the April prior to that, uh, he was not given the opportunities for the math. No, sorry, the math, yes. The science, no. So he had to go to Bay Roberts on uh, his own dime, and like we had to swap our schedule, work what, however we could to get him there and get him home in order to get the science end of it done. Now, this was like I was really, really in their face to try and make this happen. So, when in the University of Waterloo, the first thing my Newfoundland son had to do was to learn coding for computer language and programming. He started behind the eight ball. Okay? Now, having said what I have said, I call out the present government, the teachers, Memorial University, and the unions that represent them to please, please educate our children starting in kindergarten because they have a, a sponge for a brain, you see. And that's pretty well all I have to say. Fair enough. 
The issue with coding, there has been a pretty significant increase in coding type curriculum in schools, which is for all the obvious reasons, whether it be with simple problem solving, critical thinking, preparation for what the jobs of the future will look like and jobs of today. So I think we're making some strides there. But my biggest concern today in school is that we have heard from government, admittedly, have not addressed the issue of learning loss. And I think that's going to be something that five, ten years from now we're going to look back and say, how and why did we not do better on that front, but preparing uh, young people for whether it be post-secondary opportunities and or the competitive job market globally, if we don't have those basic skills regarding computer literacy, coding and otherwise, we're setting them up to either chase their tail or to play catch-up when there's no time for catch-up. Exactly. Uh, my point exactly, like, you know, I'm talking to you about back in 2002, that's 21 years ago. Like, come on, you know, people, like, like, this is 2023. And these same issues are being reshuffled in a political manner that is not acceptable to the people. Yeah, we've spoken to some folks who are part of developing the coding curriculum inside the K-8 system in particular. If I remember correctly, as recently as 2021, I think 80% of schools had uh, implemented coding in a variety of curriculum areas. So I'll chase that a little bit more to ensure and find out exactly where we are in the K-8 and or the entirety of the K-12 system. I know there was always some high school curriculum associated with this, but I'm not, I can't be precise in just how penetrative we've been with the K-8 system at this point, but I'll see what I can find out, Larry, but it's important stuff. You're, okay, great. Uh, I, I really appreciate having the time to voice my concerns and, you know, very widespread uh, effect that uh, it will have on our future generation. 100%. So, uh, you know, Patty, thanks very much, and uh, you have a great day. The very same, Larry. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. Yeah, because we've talked to the folks from Brilliant Labs, right? a couple of times so maybe it's time for a check-in once again then there's the can code program that's part of the formerly what was the district and they're played to do more and more coding type of work in the schools anyway i'll follow up on that no prob let's go to line number three craig you're on the air hey buddy how are you excellent how you doing good um just listen to your caller i think it was daniel talking about chess yep Yep, and uh, he made an important point. Uh, I don't know if it was intended or not, but he spoke about his nephew and ADHD and how his behavior changed and whatnot. I just want to make a couple of comments. Please do. So as someone with ADHD and also an advocate for um, awareness, um, one of the greatest misconceptions about ADHD is an inability to focus. The problem is focusing on what's important at the right time. <laughs> the flip side of that is that we tend to hyper-focus when we find something that we're really interested in. So I just thought it was a really important point to put out there for parents or even adults who might be struggling with, you know, behaviors or kind of feeling down and out. I mean, one of the things about ADHD as well is kind of having a lack of confidence and feeling like a bit of an outsider. So when you find something that interests you, it can absolutely change your behavior. Um, it gives you a sense of confidence. You feel like part of a community. So I just thought it was a really important point, and I just want to 
add a little bit to that. Yeah, it wasn't lost on me. I thought it was an important part of the conversation as well. So just so I'm clear, is, in your opinion, finding something like chess, when Daniel talks about his relationship with his uh, friend, or is he his brother, is it? (laughs) So much going on in my head. So is that a good thing because it would lead to potential hyperfocus and, you know, just extends some of the issues surrounding ADHD, or is that a really positive thing? My okay, sorry. My point is, is that it's absolutely positive. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Um, it, it it can be a negative thing at certain points in life, especially you know if you're married and have kids and you have other responsibilities. You need that person to kind of say, okay, you know, you've been sitting there doing that for five hours. That's amazing, but you know, you got to go put out the garbage. <laughs> that's important. But um, for children, uh, no. I, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely a positive. Yeah, me too. And I guess, you know, there's a way to when you find something that your child loves doing. And for many, of of course, it may be fortunately or unfortunately, it may be video games. If you can talk about whether it be problems with focus and or hyperfocus, if you have associated tasks assigned to uh, your child in, so they can play their games or they can play chess for hours on end or they can do whatever for hours on end. If you want to do that, you also have to do this. So consequently, all of a sudden, just from an ad hoc approach, you've created a bit more structure. And consequently, some of your focus areas or your hyper-focus areas and your behavioral issues might be tempered simply because if I want to do this, well, I got to do that as well. So, yeah, there we go. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, no, absolutely a positive. And chess, geez, I mean, <laughs> I've never played a game of chess in my life, but that's fantastic. So It is. That's all I want to say. Yeah, I see. I watch my kids play, and I know so many other people who play. There's lots of games that I do enjoy playing, and I'm sure chess would be one of them if I could just ever get off my duff and learn how to play. I'm going to have to try. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good to have you on the show, Craig. Yeah, no, thanks. I just think it, it was an important point, so I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Stay in touch. Okay, yeah, thank You're you. Right. Bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. Here we go. Yeah, there is pretty good. Uh, break time, and when we come back, Peter's in the queue to talk a little hydro Quebec. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Peter, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Pat. How are you? Okay, thanks. You? Perfect, sir. Good. I just want to bring to your attention and your listeners uh, something I read yesterday uh, in the Globe Mail. The fact that August the 1st, uh, Quebec Hydro uh, has a new CEO by the name of Michael Sabia. And just to point out, if you you look up this guy's resume, it's very impressive. He's a very tough negotiator. He's one of the, he's the top guy that turned the case uh, pension plan, Quebec pension plan around several years ago. And as of recent, he just came from the uh, federal Department of Finance as a deputy minister. So when I looked at that and I looked up this chap's background, resume, and that, I thought, please, God, I hope and pray that we put forward a really strong team to represent this province and our resource, and I'd like to say our resource, and hope to pray to God that we don't lose out on this one. 
uh, his track record is pretty impressive, as you say. And, of course, he replaces Sophie Brochu as the CEO of Hydro-Quebec. Not only was he the deputy minister of, in the Department of Finance, he was also the chairperson of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. He was the CFO at, Bell, or, pardon me, at the Canadian Railway, CN, the CN Railway. He was on the executive team at Bell Canada. Uh, he was the deputy secretary to the Privy Council in the 80s and early 90s. So he has been around the proverbial block, and he is going to be a force to be reckoned with, no doubt about it. Very good. Uh, you saved me a lot of breath. Uh, anyway, you, 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 you pretty much summed it up, Petty. But at the end of the day, for you and I, it's past my time. But I hope for our, our kids and future generations that we don't get this one wrong. And when I saw that name come up, I said, Legault picked the right man for this position. Now, he has no energy background, but, you know, just based on everything else that he's done. It won't take him very long to, to uh, you know, get up to date fairly quickly. Sure. The, uh, my only thought on that is that, for instance, if we're simply talking about 2041, there's no way we can do worse. <laughs> you know, like we, we can't do worse than we already do on that front. And Legault, I suppose he will indeed be part of the shot calling here and dis- final decision making. But I'm sure Sabi will hold a massive big hammer on these negotiations. It's what what it looks like after, or if there's any further partnerships or relationships to be developed with Hydro Quebec. Because, like I said, the 2041 agreement, unless something changes for the positive, there's no need to reopen it because we simply cannot do worse. I, and we, I don't think the people that we've got on that team can be hoodwinked into us doing worse but it's fair ball to point out that the person at the other side of the table has been around has obviously got a lot of friends in high places both federally and in the province of quebec so yeah there's a lot to be said for that and that's the worry because you know let's be honest these negotiations they have to work in our favor yep you know for once and i'm always afraid and i'm not blaming any any particular government but we all know once the Fed put their uh, finger on the scale, who knows what, which way this could turn. And, you know, with his background, like you said, and uh, having all those contacts at the federal level, you know, I'm fearing that, you know, we could get a, a bunch of money up front and God knows what we'd get going forward, you know, and it, it could be rejigged any which way. And that's what concerns me. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if we even hear what Legault says publicly, and knowing some of the facts of the matter, that 15% of Hydro-Quebec's generating capacity comes from the Upper Churchill. So they do indeed really need us to be a continued partner. The trick is whether or not we understand better what happens in 41, but more importantly, over the next four, uh, 17 years, is there going to be a way to reopen it where we get a l- larger portion of the profits? It seems unlikely to me, but I'm sure that's part of the conversation. What I'd also finally add, and then I'll give you the last word, is we actually struck a provincial committee to look at the implications of 2041. So I don't expect our negotiating team to show their cards. I don't expect to get a transcript from every conversation or meeting. But it would be nice to know what our own provincial committee knows about what 41 means. For some people, it's the the panacea. It's the golden egg. It's the end of our worries or woes. When I'm pretty sure that's exaggerated. So why doesn't the province simply tell us what 41 means while they try to negotiate the next 17 years leading up to the expiration of that contract yeah but as you know quebec's in a bit of a rush now to get some power generated right now because they have current contracts that they're trying to uh maintain yep. so they need the power in within three years apparently they're going to be saturated so they're looking forward to trying to get something 
sooner rather than later. Now, that may help us. Please, God, I hope it does. But anyway, all I wanted to point out was I hope we got our our best hockey team up there going forward because uh, we're going to need it. Anyway, thank you for your time. Just let me give you one tidbit that might be of interest to somebody. His wife, her name is Hillary Pearson. She's the granddaughter of Lester B. Pearson. Okay. <laughs> That's really wow. neither here nor there, but talk about no. historical connectivity. Well, you know, it just goes back further and deeper with with the uh, the Liberals overall. Now, I'm hoping having a Liberal government here, but that's today. God knows what we have going forward. But, you know, we need to start things rolling soon and have our ducks in order. Like, I don't want us to, to use the hockey analogy, have the St. John's Caps All-Stars go up to play the Montreal Canadiens. If we do, game over in Detroit. So... Uh, he's got a master's from Yale, so he's not going to be yeah. he's not going to be pushed over. Exactly. So, just to put it on the back burner for the time being, but going forward, it's going to be interesting to see what what develops. Anyway, hundred percent. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Take Bye. care. There you go. Bye bye. Yeah. So that does have implications when someone like Michael Sabia takes over Hydro Quebec. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Tanish Bat, and he's at Gonzaga High School. Good morning, Tanish. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So we've been talking a bit of chess, which I think is a great escape from some of the other issues that we talk about. And I think you run the chess club at Gonzaga High. Yes, I do. Tell us about the club. How strong is it? Uh, Gonzaga Chess Club is uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, clubs at Gonzaga High School, for one. And it's actually one of the biggest chess clubs um, in the entire province, actually. We have um, over 60 players. And um, we have, every week, we have uh, some great turnouts. We run some great tournaments, leagues. um, And really, like, anyone who... uh, Interest it always comes by to play. It's a really good environment. Tanish, what grade did you just complete? I just finished grade 11. So you will have some knowledge, at least for two years, about how the club has grown. We know internationally the number of players has grown. Interest in the game has grown. Uh, internet access to watching tournaments has grown by leaps and bounds. How big or how quickly or, or has your club grown in the last two, three years? Yeah, for sure. Um, it actually just started off as a pretty small club um, when I – uh, started Gonzaga at, at Gonzaga in grade 10. We had like maybe 10, 15 players max. Um, and then just rapidly, just we started like growing in numbers like 20, 30, 40. And um, I think over the years, like um, especially after COVID, people like have really gained interest in chess with um, uh, even like the Queen's Gambit with uh, COVID lockdowns and promoting online chess. Um, we've just seen like a huge boom in the amount of uh, people interested um, over these past like three or so years. So with that, we've had a huge increase, like gradually for sure. What does the competitive world look like in high school chess? So you mentioned you have tournaments in house. How about competing against other chess clubs, other high schools in different parts of the province? Yeah, for sure. So. Um, uh, I've hosted uh, two tournaments within uh, within this year, um, and like we've had some great turnouts. Like we've had uh, 85 and 77 um, players come, and like the NL School Chess Association um, as well, um, which is like uh, also hosting some great um, chess.
chess events throughout the province. Uh, the provincial finals actually had 109 players, which is uh, one of the greatest turnouts in the past decade. And um, even more, uh, the in- NL Individual Chess Club beat that by 172. So we've had some like uh, great turnouts overall from like the K to 12 and uh, in the high school uh, world of chess as well. What kind of support does the chess club get from the school itself? Um, well, we've get, received a lot of support um, logistics-wise. So like um, being able to actually uh, use like some of the school's resources, some of the school's rooms, uh, being able to like actually uh, accommodate like all these uh, like different schedules, etc. Um, to try to have like a club that's open to everyone in Gonzaga um, that can actually that can work. So the schools like that's one of the greatest uh, support that the school has given us, and um, it's, it's really great to see that we can um, accommodate so many players as well. The school's really helped with that as well. Tanish, is there such a thing as uh, chess mentors or chess coaches or people who are really advanced skill to come in and speak to chess members? Is that something that happens? Yeah, for sure. So um, chess is like, uh, like if it, it requires a lot of like, uh, like learning per se to like get better. And so a lot of people do actually use coaching. They use training lessons and um, a lot of like our, um, like um, a huge thing in NL is um, like the older players in high school will oftentimes mentor younger chess players who are just starting uh, to get into the game to try to help improve their skills. Um, but what's even uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, at Gonzaga actually um, we also have a like a chess lessons program as well for anyone who wants to learn um, how to play or just overall improve. And this year in particular, that had a huge, um, that was huge um, that happened. And it was quite beneficial to a lot of players who um, just started out and actually wanted to learn how to play. It sounds good. And we know, like, for instance, when my son Jack was going to university in Quebec, we played a lot of backgammon online together. But now that we're back face to face more and more often these days, is your personal preference or how about your club members to get together and play on the board with the physical pieces? Or is there more opportunity and more interest in playing online? Um, Yeah, so I think at least my personal preference and I know um, some other members and players in my club they usually prefer the in-person um, experience just because they have that better um, ability to like actually visualize what's what's going on in the game it really helps to have like an actual physical board physical pieces um, to really understand um, what's going on and like chess is it's really big on understanding like what you want to do and what your opponent wants to do so it makes it easier in that sense um, online, it's, it's a great way to play uh, others like who aren't close by, um, close by to you. But um, it, it's more enjoyable, and it's, it's it's much better to learn and grow with um, in-person chess for sure. Do even recreational players all play with the timer, or is that just in competitive settings? Um, <laughs> that's um, in in most competitive uh, settings. Uh, you're going to see clocks being used to play games. Um, and recreational players, like, they have the option to, like, if they, uh, they want to play cl- using clocks, um, they for sure can. 
But um, in the on the competitive side, um, at the provincial, national levels, everything's on um, clocks. It makes sense to me. I appreciate making time for the show. Enjoy the rest of the summer, and good luck uh, next chess season at school. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Tanish. Stay in touch. There Bye. we go. Tanish Bat is the... Operator, or I guess the organizer of the Gonzaga Chess Club. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, there's a caller talking about waiting for rebates. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5:30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Police officer on that team. Hello. Hello. Hi, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. You? That's good. I'm good, but I have to say that I'm a little bit frustrated. Okay, what's going on? I'm calling now on behalf of my son, and he suffers from mental illness, and I work with him and stuff. Um, anyway, he's on low income, and I try to help him out as much as I can. Um, he's still waiting on the GST. He's waiting on the grocery rebate, and he's also waiting on the rental supplement. I've been uh, calling the federal office, uh, I'd say, for the past three or four weeks. And I called again just before I called you, and I still don't have an answer. So just to be clear, he didn't get the GST check or the bump-up, what they're calling a grocery rebate? No, he hasn't received it. And he is eligible? He is eligible. And He's he did, on uh, income assistance. And he did file his taxes? He filed his taxes. And he's also waiting on the rental supplement uh, that came out a few months ago. And I still, he still haven't, hasn't received that either. And he has a lot of anxiety, so I'm dealing with this anxiety every day. And I will tell you, he's doing really well. He has his own little apartment. And I called into you about six years ago, and I was a mother in desperate need, and you didn't know what to tell me at that time because he was going down a hard road. And he has pulled himself together. He has gotten help. Uh, he's he's doing really, really well. He's been clean now for about six years. I'm glad to hear it. Good news. Yeah, and now he's dealing with this. Okay, so I wouldn't know, <clears throat> pardon me, I wouldn't know why GST is not coming out on time. And to be honest, it's the first time I've heard from someone who is technically eligible, has filed their taxes, that did not get their GST check. So hard to know how we, or possibly why he fell through that, that crack. Interestingly, on the grocery rebate, <clears throat> they used the, the 2021 tax return, not the 2022 tax return. For what reason? Not entirely sure, but that's one of those weird features of that benefit. And with the rental supplement, is this the Canada housing benefit? Uh, no, I think it's something separate. Um, it's based under income, um, which he was paying. That's another issue, but for I guess I can mention that as well. Uh, in the past year, uh, well, it's going to be close to a year and a half, his rent has gone up from $600 a month, and now it's going up to $900 in January. It went up last year to 725 Now it's going up to 900 for a one-bedroom apartment in a building. Uh, the government is only supplementing um, uh, from about 475 to 500 a month towards this, and the rest has to come out of his personal amount. So we have those people on income assistance 
They're paying all this money for rent, and it's taken, being taken from their food and their heat allowance. Absolutely, because you can only slice the pie up so many different ways. It all comes out the, the same at the end. So the Canada Housing Benefit, the application closed, I think it was the end of March, and so there's yeah. probably a likelihood that it is going to be a bit of a delay between the closing of the portal and the, if this is the program that I think he's talking about. So it was tax-free, one-time payment, 500 bucks. That's what he's waiting on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right, so that one is probably the natural slow pace of government operation, but the GST is entirely different. That's automated. Yes, and he was expecting it on the 5th. I mean, yep. he's waiting for this money. And the poor, you know, the poor man, like now, you know, every day he's waking up, like checking his account and wondering if it's there. Yeah, I get it. So calling the federal government directly, CRA, is always going to be a handful. But what I would do is I'd also put his member of parliament to work or one of the, the, that person's assistants to find out, do a little digging on his behalf. So oh, what part? This oh. is what I've been doing the past three or four weeks. And who's that member? Just curiously, uh, curiosity. Uh, Mr. Small, Clifford Small. Hmm. I've been dealing with his office the past, I'd say, three weeks for sure. And I called again this morning, and he's like, you know, he doesn't really know what to say about us. Like, he's not receiving an answer, so he's going to try now to go to the supervisor in government. But, I mean, you know, like... It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. You know, I, I do think there's a natural lag in the rental supplement issue, but GST should never be any issue or argument whatsoever. It's an automated piece of the pie. You know, it comes out automatically. So there's obviously his name is not on the eligibility list because nobody waits for things that are automated. Like GST is one of those things you can you can count on when you're going to get your GST check. Okay, now when I called them initially, like about two or three weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago when he didn't get it, uh, they said that they weren't allowed, there is people that hasn't gotten it, and they weren't allowed to call in to government. They had to wait so long before they were allowed to call in and check on it. Okay, so... Uh, I don't know if you've used this particular number, but there's we have different uh, set of luck with different numbers on how we try to contact CRA through their general line. And I'll just give you this number. Maybe this is the one that you've called repeatedly, but just in an effort to try to help. So okay. it's 1-800. Okay, just one second. Yeah. Nope, no problem. Okay. 1-800-387. Uh, okay. 1-193. Okay, perfect. I'll try that one. Yeah, give it a shot. That's a, a GST-specific number. Okay. All right, well, I want to say thank you very much. My mom and dad, they listen to you regularly. <laughs> I don't always get the opportunity. Well, hello, mom and dad. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> they live in Goose Cove. <laughs> Terrific. Say hello to them for me. I will, and it was really nice chatting with you. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay, thank okay. you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, big thanks to David Williams for giving me that GST-specific number. Fingers flying. All right, let's take our final break of the morning. Michelle, you're next. Don't go away. We'll go back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Michelle, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I was just calling, actually, to um, let uh, people be aware of a scam that's um, going on right now. Um, I've never fallen for any of these scams before, so I felt like such a fool at the end of it. But they, But it was like this person was controlling two different accounts on Facebook Messenger, and one of them was, like, a really, really close friend of mine. Um, 
And so this friend of mine um, had messaged me and she was like, hey, um, you need to check this link out. Like, it's this government um, money thing um, that's on the go for certain people, like uh, low-income um, people that are um, looking to pay off bills or a first-time home buyer and, um, or, like, a first-time business opportunity, that kind of stuff. And um, and so I was, she was like, I got $35,000. And I was like, what? And, like, we never talk on the phone, so we were just messaging back and forth. So I ended up messaging this person that my who I thought was my friend was telling me to message and um, I started following the steps um, to get this grant money or whatever it was supposed to be and I got almost to the very end of it so they got my driver's license they got my phone number they got my address like everything and like it was like almost to the very end of the whole thing and I was like man there's no way that this is real so I actually picked up the phone and I called my friend who lives in Cornerbrook and I called her and she was like I have no idea what we're talking about she's like I haven't spoke to you in days and I was like I've been speaking to this person for the last few days and now today they're telling me to check this person out I was like I gave them like all kinds of information and I felt so duped but they were using like my friend's account and this other person's account. They're lurking around every corner. And I guess the rule of thumb here is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. But it was just, um, I don't know, like I've never fallen for stuff like that before, but the fact that I thought I was speaking to my friend and she was like, no, this is legit. She's like, I would never like lead you astray. And you know, but they were controlling, like, because that wasn't actually her that I was speaking to. So it was just really, it was just wild. It's brutal is what it is. You know, we've seen similar scams where they pretend to be, you know, it's the old grandparent scam. Nan, it's Johnny. I'm in Toronto, blah, blah, blah. And people yeah. fall for it because people want to help their grandchildren and they want to trust their friends. So you say that you fell for it. So are you in any jeopardy financially here? Well, to be honest, like, I'm at the point where, like, even if they did get into, like, my account and stuff like that, I got nothing from the bank anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is basically why I was so excited and felt that it was legit because, like, I really thought that this was my friend in Cornerbrook telling me, like, oh, you got to do this. Like, this is going to really help you, blah, blah, blah. And then, so then I was having a conversation with this other person at the same time, going through all the steps that they were asking me to do. And I just, I just figured that I should just let other people know and, and maybe somebody else can chime in and, and see if I'm not the only person. Like, I don't know if there's legal action. Like, should should this be investigated like well you, you, there's like places where you can report it you can report it directly on facebook itself and there's also uh okay. the anti-fraud uh at the rcmp and stuff where you can put it there because they'll do some whether or not there's an extensive investigation i don't know but at least <laughs> if it becomes commonly reported then there'll be some public awareness offered which is helpful yeah. because people if they don't hear about it as being a potential scam they are much more likely to fall for it so yeah Anyway, hopefully they don't uh, wiggle into your account, even though there's nothing there to take, which I don't mean to giggle because <laughs> same thing with my account. my account. Hopefully they'll put something in there. <laughs> Absolutely right. So did they hijack your friend's direct messaging or how did they, is that yeah. how you were contacted? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and then I just followed my friends or who I thought were my friends, like, um, advice and then message this other person. So I was messaging both of them at the same time. So it was like they were controlling both accounts. So it was really weird. And so obviously your friend has been fully compromised. Yes. Yeah. I, I, well, when I called her on the phone, she was like, oh my God, not again. <laughs> like I must've been hacked. So yeah. I appreciate the call and the heads up to others. Hopefully it doesn't come back to bite you for whatever steps you took with this. But, you know, yeah. when it's your friend, you think, well, my God, if it's my friend who I've always trusted in the past, why no reason not to trust him now? But you never know. You could be dealing with someone in Bangladesh who has hijacked yeah. your friend's account. It was terrible stuff. Well, what was really creepy, too, was once I gave them my address, they sent me a picture of my house and they said, is this the right house? But it was supposed to be hand-delivered. I know, man. That's even a little, a little bit scarier. Yeah. Well, and that's why, because as soon as they said it's going to be hand-delivered by a FedEx or something like that, I was like, yeah, right. Like, government's not going to deliver you, like, to your door within, like, 24 hours. That's not happening. But they sent me a picture of my house. And I was like, yes, that's the right one. And then I was like, wait, this, wait a second. I was like, they're not going to do that. Yeah, easy enough to find those. Like Dave Williams just said in my ear, and he's 100% right. You just simply go to Google Images, and you can go to anybody's address and just uh, steal that image and use it as if you took it yourself because that's unfortunately out there. I've never really truly understood the upside of those Google Images, to be honest. Yeah. It seems like a, a digital stalking in some form to me. I don't know what the benefit is, or maybe I'm just not thinking it through because I get mentally tired around 12 o'clock. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway, I appreciate the heads up, Michelle. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, some people will absolutely come forward and they'll talk about how they've been taken advantage of. And I know it takes a lot of guts because when you have been bilked, it does come with a level of embarrassment. So we mentioned that story last week where there was a lady in Calgary. She got separated to the tune of about $500,000 of her money. And, you know, people are quick, too, and I guess that's just nature of the beast, especially these days, is people jumping down her throat, even though they don't know who she is, that, you know, how stupid can you be and what have you. But sometimes people can find themselves being vulnerable, and sometimes it can really look like something completely legitimate. Just like Michelle described, my friend using her name on her direct messaging on Facebook where you've communicated with her many, many times in the past, all of a sudden someone slips in through the digital dark corner and they take on the persona of your buddy. So look, when we hear the reported numbers, Last year, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of about $20 million that Canadians were robbed of. And you know that is the tip of the spear because so many people who have been taken advantage of, because we know that people are quick to deem them or label them as being stupid or naive or gullible or whatever it is, and it's their own fault that they got robbed. So if that $20 million, I'd be a monkey's uncle if it wasn't 200 you know, you got to believe somewhere around 10% of folks will come forward and tell their story in an effort to try to spare others from being taken advantage of. Anyway, there we go. Not going to try to squeeze one on and short shrift anybody here today who wants to get their thoughts on. More than welcome to join us in the morning again, of course. Here's, this just screams to the issue that people reg have regarding housing and food. The Newfoundland Labrador Human Rights Commission is not an emergency service, but they've got people coming to their door looking for food, looking for support to find housing. And they've had to stop taking anybody walking in the door because they simply don't do those types of things. They're not that type of service. But it is extraordinary to know 
that that's ha- happening. Because talk about grasping at straws or taking every opportunity to try to find some assistance. So they use quotes from the actual big food banks, like Bridges to Hope. Here's a couple of numbers. So young people working full-time coming through the doors. The number is unprecedented from the past. Uh, The people looking for government housing grew by 21% this spring from the year before, jumping from 2,068 people on the 19th of April 2022 to 2,493 as of April 28th of this year. Add in the numbers of people coming through the door for food supplies. We got ourselves an issue. And we did talk about a report from the uh, Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives. And, of course, all the think tanks have a specific or a type of ideological bent, whether it be compared that group to, say, the Fraser Institute or what have you. So we take those reports and we try to apply a reasonable lens. But when we know... And then we'll stick with housing. There's not one single province in the country where a minimum wage earner can spend 30% or less of their annual revenue or their annual pay on housing, can't afford a one-bedroom rental unit. How we apply that data to government policy and to highlight the issue regarding housing and whether you want to extend that conversation into rent control, vacancy control and what that means, how it could work or how it could absolutely maybe derail some pragmatic solutions, we can take that on or anything else in the morning. Final check on the Twitter we're VOCM Open Line, follow us there email address is openlineofvocm.com and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line on behalf of the producer David Williams, I'm your host Patty Daly, have yourself a safe, fun, happy Happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.